Are you not a Knausgaard fan? No. What is this? Is that like Norwegian that keeps writing these long, long things? Oh yeah. I mean, you love Proust, right? So this is like yeah. Im- imagine you'd never read Proust before, and now you get to experience it for the very first time all over again. Except you're in like 1970s rural Norway, and somewhere and I, there's actually an editor involved. You know, it does feel to me that that there's a difference between rural Norway and Paris, but. <laughs> You know, uh, the Proust of Troll Mountain. (laughs) Luckily, it's kind of like Proust, actually, in the sense that the first two volumes are amazing and the last one is amazing. And there's a lot in between that's really worth it. But if you miss it, it's not the end of the world. (laughs) Right. Proust is abridged by Jeremy Stern. (laughs) Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's begin with this week's news. First story of the week. Canada has launched an ambitious program to recruit highly skilled immigrants from all over the world, but especially from the United States, whose immigration system makes it difficult for foreign tech workers to obtain work visas. Canada's offering a three-year work permit to anyone holding a U.S. H-1B visa, the most common entry permit for immigrants working in the tech sector. The program, aimed partly at workers laid off in Silicon Valley's recent downturn, reportedly drew 10,000 applicants in its first 48 hours. According to the LA Times, it was a reflection of frustration among migrants who find the U.S. visa system difficult and slow. I hesitate to put the words Canada and news in the same sentence, Walter, but is this news or faux news? Well, if you were, if you had been in the newspaper business years ago, you'd have known that the sort of classic um, concept of the, of the boring headline, right, was worthwhile Canadian initiative. (laughs) And and so this, this does sound like very much like a worthwhile Canadian (laughs) initiative. Look, I'm perfectly happy for the Canadians to um, uh, to bring in all the immigrants they want. I don't know if you've been to Canada lately, but there's not a lot of people up there, and it's it's very cold, and uh, they've got plenty of room, and fine. I don't honestly, I don't love the H-1B visa program. I I understand that we do need to have uh, we skilled tech workers in the U.S. And I, I do favor finding ways of, of getting really qualified people, talented people to come here. But these visas, you, you end up almost being the surf of your employer. You know, you, they're, they're sort of, you can't just say, I don't like this job. I'm going to look for another one because your visa is tied to the job. That would, by the way, explain perhaps why so many people apply for these Canadian visas. If you got an H-1B visa um, and you're unemployed, that's, a, that's actually kind of a problem. Uh, so, um, and, and to be, I like the idea of a, of a country where everybody living in our country has the same, you know, rights and legal status and all of this, that, that having a class of visas that sort of puts people in a, in a dependence relation to their employer's doesn't thrill me, but you know, it's beside the point in a way, 
our immigration system is broken. Um, we, we're having, a, on the one hand, a surge of uncontrolled immigration across the southern border. And as I understand it, the Iranians and lots of other people who don't like us very much have noticed that we have essentially given up on policing the southern border. And lots of people, not to mention lots of drugs and other things who really shouldn't be here, are moving in. Uh, that's not good. At the same time, companies who really do need workers with certain skills and qualifications are having a hard time getting them. And if you look at American history, there's simply no doubt that a fl the constant flow of immigrants has been one of the one of the things that's made us a great country. The I do have one area maybe in which I really do kind of go off from conventional wisdom. A lot of the people who talk about immigration don't like what they might call low-end immigrants. That is illiterate or semi-literate farm workers coming in, you know, um, peasants from Central America or farmers. And they say we should be getting doctors and uh, corporate executives and so on. I'm not against doctors and corporate executives and talented people coming to the United States, but actually our history is one of where, you know, people who were considered, you know, surplus and not interesting and non-elite, they come to the United States and they want and and they build something amazing. And furthermore, I think sometimes people who there's a temptation when if your immigration comes just from the upper classes of a far society, these are people who don't necessarily think their old society was working all that badly. I mean, I was rich, I was privileged there, now I'm rich and privileged here. Um, you get the people who are coming, you know, generations of oppression as sharecropping peasants or something like that. They want something different. They, they, they're drawn to the United States. They're not just pushed out, they're pulled in. And these are the immigrants who characteristically embrace the American way, want to participate in American life, are absolutely willing and eager, if need be, to defend their new country. So I think this idea that, that the way to rebalance our immigration is to get rid of you know, um, regular people immigrants and only go for la creme de la creme that may not actually be the smartest policy in the long run. All right, our second story. Three forces are pushing Latin America to become the 21st century's commodity superpower, according to The Economist. First, the green transition is increasing demand for metals and minerals, like copper, silver, and many others, that Latin America has in large supply, as well as the renewable energy to process them. Second, its fertile land produces enough grain, animals, coffee, and sugar to help feed a growing global population. And third, geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China causing countries to look fondly on investing in what they see as a relatively neutral part of the world. So is this news or faux news? You know, every now and then you get a news story that's so poorly thought through that it doesn't even deserve the label faux news. <laughs> um, because here we have someone nattering, oh, wow, Latin America is a producer of commodities and people need commodities. What a brilliant future lies ahead. 
Latin America, and I, I don't want to shock the poor writers who, who put this piece out, but Latin America has been a commodity exporting uh, set of economies for two centuries. And guess what? It hasn't been that good for them. You know, uh, what do they say that this old saw about Brazil? Brazil is the country of the future and, and always, always will be. be. <laughs> exactly. And that's, you know, you, you, Brazil had gemstone booms, uh, lumber booms, rubber, coffee, and these sort of commodity booms and busts. Where the Latin American countries have fallen short over and over again is they've never built world-class manufacturing sectors. They've never built world-class service and financial service sectors. And this, so this looks like actually not some kind of Latin America, the, the butterfly bursting from the cocoon, but Latin America about to go through yet another commodity super cycle. It's not good news. Okay, final story of the week. Russia is on the attack in northeastern Ukraine as it tries to take back territory that Kiev captured last fall and to divert Ukrainian forces from their current counteroffensive in the south and east. The main fighting is taking place just 16 miles from the Russian border where Russia is trying to cross Ukrainian minefields and advance on the city of Kupyansk to the south. Ukraine's been inching forward in the south and east as it presses on with its counteroffensive launched deep against deeply fortified Russian positions. But Russia's efforts around Kupyansk show that it still intends to take even more territory. So the day-to-day -day of Ukraine's counteroffensive, Walter, where the headlines have so far appeared mostly pretty grim. News or faux news? I'm sorry to say, I think it's it's news. Um, though it, you know, in a sense, the 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 news that I find most shocking and depressing is not that the Ukrainians are failing to advance, but when you look at the reasons why they are failing to advance, one of the things that keeps coming up over and over again is the Russians are have have used mines, landmines, to fortify their defensive lines. Now. You know, if, if you plan an offensive and the enemy uh, defeats your, foils your plans because they've invented some new wonder weapon that no one has ever heard of before or have come up with some genius tactical move that the history of warfare has never seen, well, that's sad, but it's understandable, all right? With the U.S. military staff advising the Ukrainians, we had all of these experts, here's Here's your plans for an offensive. Okay, and and this is foiled by mines. Do people think that Russian Russia doesn't know what a landmine is? Landmines are cheap. There are lots of them. Even an army that has bad morale is perfectly capable of of setting up minefields. In fact, to some degree, the worse your morale is and the less you want to fight the more willing you are to go out there and, and, and lay a, a one-mile belt of landmines between you and the enemy. So this looks to me very much like deeply, deeply flawed military advice. Um, this and, and the cost is immense. Um, I don't think I'm the only person in the world who finds it surprising that something as utterly predictable 
and as utterly likely as belts of landmines would stop uh, the that that's just not a sign of good thinking. So whether that's in the Ukrainian military or whether it's in their Western advisors, I, of course, have no way of knowing, but it's not good. I'd take a step further and say this war really is looking in many ways much more like World War I than World War II in the sense that a lot there, there's a lot more sort of trench warfare and you know big attacks that, that have high casualties but don't gain much ground both in some of the Russian attacks and now the Ukrainian counterattacks. And there's also something else. Air power is not playing a very large role in this. You know, what happens with Hitler's Blitzkrieg? It's planes, dive bombers coming out there, as well as the tanks, but it's the planes that paved the way for these rapid Blitzkrieg advances. And then when the tide turns and the U.S. is invading, the Allies are invading at Normandy, or the Soviets are gaining the upper hand on the Eastern Front, massive air superiority is key to this. And you just, you know, again, you might have a lot of trenches and you're all sitting in your trenches, but now you're getting bombed and strafed. And furthermore, every car behind the lines is getting, you know, German generals are having to get off the road and jump out of their cars and go hide in the trees because allied planes are, are getting them. Air power is not playing anything like that role in Ukraine today. And so again, it's a little bit more like uh, World War I, not completely with the drones, but air power seems to be more useful as reconnaissance than as a way of moving battle lines. Um, and you say, well, boy, the Americans should be giving the Ukrainians F-16s and I, and I think we should have done more faster. Uh, history, I, I don't think, is going to look kindly on the dribble, dribble, dribble approach to military aid here. But um, again, you, don't, you can't use F-35s and F-16s in the way you could use these World War II bombers and fighters, where we're producing, you know, I think 100,000 planes a year at the peak of our production. And where, again, to train somebody to fly one of these planes, uh, it does not take a degree in computer science. It's not years of training. If somebody can drive a car or a tank, they can, they can drive a, you know, pilot a plane fairly quickly. So we don't have, the planes are too expensive. There are too few of them. Finally, let me just say that, that all the, all the wars America has fought, sadly not as successfully as we should, air supremacy, total air supremacy, has been the key to everything our military has done for a very long time. From the Gulf War of the 1990s, Iraq War, um, you know, we've, we've dominated the air. And we've used that. Our troops have all, you know, worked with air cover. Um, and so... When we're asking the Ukrainians essentially to fight without this, I'm not sure that Amer the American military really knows that well how do you plan a campaign in conditions where you don't have that offensive air superiority that's, that has been uh, so common. So what I find here is 
is, is bad, you know, a couple of levels, layers of bad news. Number one, the offensive isn't going, counteroffensive isn't going well. Longer war, more suffering, uh, more mischief that Putin can do. Number two, um, it just suggests a lack of strategic imagination in the militaries involved that I find deeply, deeply concerning. All right, that's it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So, Walter, we got a huge response from listeners to a recent episode in which we talked about the history of voter fraud in America, and especially the example of Landslide Lyndon, the nickname earned by Lyndon Johnson after he very likely stole tens of thousands of votes from Coke Stevenson in the 1948 Democratic Senate primary election in Texas, which I think Johnson technically won by literally 85 votes or 95 votes or something like that. And it got me thinking more about Johnson and how his only five years in office or so as president, which came to an end, what, almost six decades ago, seems to be getting more relevant rather than less as time goes on, more culturally salient, more central to a lot of the political battles we have in 2023. So there's not only the legacy of the Vietnam War, Medicare, the war on poverty, the immigration reforms of the 1960s. There's also, of course, civil rights law, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and then the 1968 uh, Civil Rights Act. Now, for my entire life and probably the lives of a lot of our listeners, civil rights law in America has been, in a way, you could say beyond reproach. We think of it as one of the very few examples we have in American history of a legislative accomplishment that is like clearly ethical, moral, just in a kind of clean, uncomplicated way, right? It's, It's like proof the democratic process can be used to achieve real justice. But that way of understanding civil rights laws seems to be coming apart and quite dramatically. So on the intellectual right, especially, I think civil rights laws seen increasingly as not just the root, but like the direct and ongoing cause of things like DEI, critical race theory, wokeism, anti-racism, and so on, taking over a lot of institutions. And then on the left, or at least parts of the left, I think civil rights law is seen now as at best a partial compromise that didn't go far enough to deserve anything like a reputation for having overcome the legacy of Jim Crow. But regardless of each side's specific critique, I think we can say they're, they're probably both correct when they look around and say, you know, the, the issue of race in America is heating up and has been heating up recently, not cooling down. So not an easy thing to, to have to critique, but what, if anything, would you say, Walter, went wrong with the great civil rights legislation of the 1960s? Well, I should start by saying that I grew up, I'm old enough to remember segregation. Um, My birth certificate in the state of South Carolina has white on it. And that that label meant that I would determine which schools I went to, what opportunities I'd have, uh, even uh, what stores I could shop in, what hotels I could sleep in, all of those kinds of things. And I can remember seeing white and colored signs even on drinking fountains um, and um, saw uh, at first hand the, the social stratification and the, really the horrors of Jim Crow, of the Jim Crow South. That all ended with the Civil Rights Acts. 
And so I, you're never going to hear me say that that, that that was sort of a mistake. Um, it, it needed to happen, and it needed to happen by law. And after, and 100 years after Reconstruction, we finally got around to uh, at least trying to address some of the problems that had, had been with us for a very long time. But it's also true, I mean, I, I think both liberals and conservatives have had very disingenuous approaches to civil rights legislation. Since uh, if you go back and you look at what some conservative opponents of the civil rights laws were saying in the 1960s, a lot of them were saying, look, um, the real problem here is deep-seated social attitudes and thinking that you can just change these with some magic piece of legislation is, is the kind of barmy liberal thinking that we rooted profound Burkean conservatives are much too wise to, to fall into that trap. But you'll now hear conservatives saying, hey, racism, that's totally in the past. We passed those civil rights laws. So now that we've passed these declaratory laws, the problem is over. No more. And, uh, you know, and, and a deep-seated social condition that affected virtually everything in the country has simply been banished by an act of the legislature. All right, this is this is ridiculous. It's not serious. But a lot of people think this way. And on the other hand, I think um, liberals really um, overestimated what these laws could or should achieve, um, and underestimated. You know, I think we all forgot that the real work, the real change in, in America that came, and it's not complete and it still has further to go, was the change, I think, that was really primarily led by uh, conservative black Southerners. I don't know if I can say anything more transgressive than that, and I'm trying not to trigger anybody here, but I look at the history of, of the black South and what I see is after the Civil War with the, the, the freed slaves and the black leadership, uh, Eve, you know, were just unable to resist the sort of return of white supremacy. I mean, they resisted, but they were unable to defend their political rights and freedoms. Um, and yes, the, the national government abandoned them after 1877, but even so, they, you know, they, they just hadn't been able to do it. Um, and you have these incredibly, I think, visionary, courageous people, Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, a whole host of people who said, okay, we've lost the political battle for now, and we are not going to contest that. But we are going to build a black South that has the leadership, the moral character, the vision, the understanding of principle. And this, you know, building this up will, will build up our economic condition, but it will ultimately lead to a new place for us. And if you really look at what Martin Luther King did, the core of his work was to build on this network of black educated 
um, lawyers, doctors, undertakers, nurses, teachers in in every town in the in, in every town in the South. You had this this structure of principled, educated, solid citizen black leaders who had the trust of the people around them could understand the very complex political project that Martin Luther King was wanted to carry out with the extremely difficult ethical and moral demands of the campaign of nonviolent opposition. And they were able to put this through. And the that changed America. It weakened the resistance even in the white South. There was still plenty of resistance. But people would look at these disciplined, nonviolent marchers, listen to what they were saying, see who the people were who were involved in it. And it forced a lot of white Southerners to begin the process of rethinking who, black, who they thought black people were what they thought black society was capable of. And the moral superiority that these, um, that, that the marchers at Selma and elsewhere demonstrated, that these campaigners demonstrated, captured the imagination of the world of the United States and resulted in some of the, the, the greatest political changes. But um, what you see, I think, after that is to some degree sort of radicals and and left-wingers wanted to say no 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 you know this this was not about like christian character building in the rural south right it's about the communist party's long cpusa's long struggle organize the black masses blah 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 right all of this and then you know with the sort of new left coming in and malcolm x this this much more radical approach. Um, and again, I, I, you know, I, I would argue that, that there's been less racial, there was more racial progress um, uh, when the movement was grounded in these other, I think, stronger and more, and, and more enduring values and, and, and personalities and institutions. Um, so, and, and I think this gets to the conservative point that funda- racial equality and dignity in the United States is much more a matter of the heart than it is a matter of the law. Not that the law does not have a place. We had a whole civil war that in one way or another revolved around race. We have, we have race in the Constitution in a way that we don't have many other things. You know, we don't have... Um, uh, minority rights for different kinds of minorities explicitly guaranteed in the Constitution. This is a serious national issue, deserves a serious national response. But I think um, ultimately this is, set, you know, the, the thing that creates the political conditions for real progress, transformational progress on race is in the heart. It's it, and it is the you know when you look at the uh, the loss of social capital. By the way, not only among blacks but among whites in the last since the Great Society. You know, um, breakdown of of family structures, 
um, isolation, breakdown of all kinds of communal structures from, you know, from churches to bowling leagues to labor unions, you know, pick your targets. Uh, our, our, our society is much more atomized and consumer driven. And to put another way, selfish. Um, and this is, this is ultimately a failure of moral leadership. I think we need to go back and look at some of these forgotten heroes of American history who, with the whole world against them, with legal segregation enforced by lynch, by lynching and terror, where any black person who dared to kind of stand up would become risk becoming a target for the most vicious brutality. These people patiently, without a lot of financial reward, um, they built something new. They built the foundation of a new kind of America. So uh, I would like to see. I would. I would like to see young people studying more of this history. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. Sadly, Walter, it's the end of summer, known out here in California as the beginning of fire season. But for many of our listeners and their families, it means it's back to school time. Now, you've taught undergraduates for many years. You've even, I think, got your start teaching high school. I think you yourself were even a, a student at one point at some unidentified point in the past. So for our listeners who are college students or the parents of college students or soon-to-be college students, What's the one tip, the one piece of advice you'd give them that they probably haven't heard already? All right. Well, first, I do think, Jeremy, that that fire season may be delayed in California this year. I think uh, flood season sort of erupted. It wasn't Joan Didion who said that the seasons in California are, what is it, uh, drought, fire, flood, and quake. Yeah, not much has changed since. No, except <laughs> this year you had flood and quake coming together. Right. Uh, all right, but I think the strangest thing to me about the way so many Americans approach higher education and the most the sort of least effective is think about how much more time people spend thinking about what college they'll get into than, or what college their kids will get into than about what they're actually going to study once they get there. That people spend years in high school, you know, trying to get ready to get into the college of their sometimes their parents' dreams, sometimes their own, uh, and, and we have these whole industries dedicated to helping you get into the college of your choice. But really, at, at just about any college you can think of, there are more great books in the library than any student is going to read in four years. There are more good courses in the catalog than any student is going to take in four years. There are more interesting professors than they're going to get to know, and far more interesting students who could be great lifetime companions and friends than they're going to get to know. You are not going to suck your college dry. Um, and so I, my tip would be spend less time worrying about where you go to college, spend a lot more time thinking about how is the best way to spend your time at whatever college, in fact, you are attending. There you have it. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. <laughs>